program is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. To donate or sign up for a membership, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive, The Onion Radio News, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, and Media Matters, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from Countdown with Keith Olbermann. On July 29th, the American Civil Liberties Union issued a review of the Obama administration covering its 18-month record on national security, civil liberties, and human rights. It says that despite some important shifts away from the policies of the Bush years, many of the extreme practices since 9-11 may be permanently enshrined in law by this White House. The ACLU concludes that there is a real danger that, quote, the Obama administration will preside over the creation of a new normal. Ben Wisner is an attorney for the ACLU. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Why don't you start with the good news from the ACLU's point of view? Well, there is good news. On President Obama's second full day in office, he signed a series of executive orders that really meant to sweep away some of the most egregious abuses of the Bush administration. He prohibited torture and required that all interrogations, even CIA interrogations, comply with the Army Field Manual. He ordered that Guantanamo be closed within a year, and although that hasn't happened, it was very important to put the power and prestige of the presidency behind that goal. He ordered that the CIA shut down its overseas prisons. These executive orders carried the force of law, and they were an important break, both for the American people and for the entire world. So give me some examples of the new normal that you're worried about. Well, I think one example that may help explain uh, the title of this report is the Guantanamo situation. The administration has admirably committed itself to closing this symbol for the abandonment of the rule of law. But look at what it has proposed, a prison in Thompson, Illinois, that could hold these same detainees in military custody without charge or trial. And there's a danger here that we could close the prison but enshrine the principle. The Obama administration has claimed the authority to use lethal force against people far from battlefields. We know that it has supported drone strikes in Yemen. The United States is not involved in an armed conflict in Yemen. And if the United States is able to declare that it can treat the whole world as a battlefield, we can't very well expect that other countries won't do the same thing. You also note that this new normal extends to uh, searches of laptops and cell phones for Americans returning from abroad, that that's been used thousands of times in the past 20 months? The administration claims that even when American citizens are returning to the country, that the Fourth Amendment does not protect their mobile devices, their laptops, uh, that those can be seized and searched without even any reasonable suspicion just because Americans made the decision to go abroad and to come back. Do you have any speculations as to why this administration has backtracked from its promises with regard to civil liberties and human rights? Well, I think we have to look at the political and media environment there are certain unchallenged meta-narratives, you might call them, that really drive this debate. One of those narratives is that people who respond even to a failed terrorist attack by saying that our criminal laws are inadequate, by saying that our prisons can't safely hold terrorists, those people get the label strong and tough on terror. And people who say we should keep faith with our existing institutions, that the criminal law is certainly adequate for dealing with this new threat, those people are called soft or weak on terrorism. And that really doesn't get challenged. You know, the media has not done a good enough job contextualizing the threat of terror. How many Americans have actually died from terrorism on U.S. shores in the last 10 years? And how does that compare to other threats? What's the lesson here, that once a policy is introduced, it will be with us forever? What are the stakes? The stakes are extremely high. 
particularly since President Obama has said that he doesn't want to put in place short-term policies that will be cast aside the next time one of his political opponents takes office. The problem is when those policies really look a lot like the policies of the Bush administration, but are done with somewhat more respect for the rule of law, yes, there is a real danger that we will have a new law of counterterrorism that replaces the traditional protections of criminal law and constitutional law, and that it will be with us for a very, very long time. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. when President Obama was still candidate Barack Obama, he had a plenty of despised Republican policies to run against that would fire up the base. Liberals didn't just hate President Bush. They saw him for the threat he was, and really he was a threat to the most basic American principles of justice and decency and fair play. So candidate Obama, with apparent conviction, promised voters that if they elected him, he would end his predecessor's abuses of power. Really, he promised. Here's Mr. Obama in August 2007. I'll also reject a legal framework that does not work. There has been only one conviction at Guantanamo. It was for a guilty plea on, a, on material support for terrorism. The sentence was nine months long. There has not been one conviction of a terrorist act. I have faith in America's courts, and I have faith in our JAGs. As president, I will close Guantanamo, reject the Military Commissions Act, and adhere to the Geneva Conventions. I like that guy. Close Guantanamo. No more torture. That same day, Mr. Obama pledged to end the illegal wiretapping and surveillance of Americans. No more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war. No more ignoring the law when it is inconvenient. That is not who we are. Yeah, no more of that because I said so and I'm the president thing. Out went Mr. Bush, of course, and in came Mr. Obama, who on just his second day in office signed a series of executive orders banning torture and secret dissensions and calling for Guantanamo to close in a year. A new day had dawned in America. Except that 18 months later, that new day looks disturbingly like the old one. The president at Guantanamo is still very much open for business. The administration has been holding suspects indefinitely in another prison near the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And this White House has expanded the terrorist watch list, argued for indefinite detention, and gone after whistleblowers, and on and on and on. Today, a new report from the American Civil Liberties Union suggests that instead of ending President Bush's worst abuses, President Obama may be on the road to enshrining them. Quote, there is a very real danger that the Obama administration will preside over the creation of a new normal. President Obama, the candidate of change, turns out to be doing what American presidents nearly always do, especially in times of war. They expand executive power and they fight like hell to keep from giving it back. When one administration hands the reins to another, especially of a different party, those powers become durable, even permanent. They become bedrock. Joining us now to talk about why is Jamil Jaffer, director of the ACLU's National Security Project. Thank you so much for being here, Jamil. Thank you. Okay, because I'm a, a look on the bright side guy, what, what, what do you think sort of are the high points of the, national, of the civil liberties record in this 18-month review you guys have conducted? Well, well, there are high points, and I think that you know, we, we actually went out of our way in the report to point out the high points. Um, some of them happened in the very first days of the administration. Uh, there were the executive orders that disavowed torture, that shut down the detention centers, the CIA's detention centers, uh, that committed 
uh, to closing Guantanamo within a year, which obviously is not a promise that they were able to keep, but still, uh, I think that they, uh, they meant it when they said it and they tried. Uh, and those were all good things. Later on, they released the torture memos, and we characterized that in the report as, a, uh, as evincing a, a historic commitment to transparency. So we try to give them credit where credit is due. The, the, the bigger argument of the report, though, is that in many, many areas, what you see when you step back from the individual decisions that, that, that the administration has made, uh, what you see is an entrenchment of uh, a pattern that was started under the Bush administration. Okay, so what are those areas? I mean, and where are they most egregious where you see this kind of entrenchment? Well, the places we identify, we, we point to the indefinite detention policy, the endorsement of indefinite detention. And when, when you say that, just to, to be clear, endorsement of indefinite detention in briefs filed by the, by, by the, by the government that's as right. a matter of policy? That, that's right. I think what's happened is that the Obama administration has uh, abandoned the rhetoric of the global war on terror. But it has not abandoned the arguments that were underneath that rhetoric. Um, and that's true when it comes to indefinite detention. If you look at the arguments that the administration has made in court, uh, they are making the same, uh, the same statutory arguments that the Bush administration was making in its last days in office. Uh, if you look to uh, Guantanamo, it's true that the administration has committed to close Guantanamo, but one of the ways they're proposing to close Guantanamo is to open a new detention center uh, inside the United States, in, in Illinois. Uh, and that detention center would hold prisoners uh, indefinitely without charge or trial. So ultimately what would happen is you would shut down the prison, but you would enshrine the principle of, indef of indefinite detention. So that's another area that we, that we point to. When you map this out, if you sort of plot it against time, right, and sort of good stuff and bad stuff, it seems like that moment when they released the, when they released CIA documents and the OLC memos, and there was the big sort of Cheney backlash and all this kind of right. interplay, Cheney versus Obama, Obama made that speech in the National Archives. That seems like the last moment you can point to when they were making these kind of courageous pro-civil liberties decisions, and everything right. since there has been kind of a, st a steady downward trend. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that, that that is largely true, although I don't think it's entirely true. I mean, we point in the report to the decision uh, by the State Department to reverse the ideological exclusions of Tariq Ramadan and Adam Habib. That was a relatively recent decision. It was a decision that uh, this administration made after uh, carefully considering uh, federal court decisions that had questioned the basis for those exclusions. But that was a that was a relatively big deal and something that the administration did recently. But again, if you look at if you look if you sort of step back from the individual decisions that the administration is making every day, and you look at the broader trend there really is uh, what appears to be a kind of entrenchment of the global war on terror. Uh, the same policies on indefinite detention, uh, the same endorsement of the military commissions with some changes at the margins, but still the use of military commissions where we Two should be used of justice. You exactly. can try some people in regular federal court and then if you can't get a conviction there, you, you put them in this military commission. Right, and then you have to have a third system which, not, which isn't a system of justice at all, which is, which is the indefinite, indefinite right, detention, yeah, right? right? right, right. Um, and then the, the administration has also expanded the Bush administration administration's targeted killing program. Uh, and in some ways, that's the, the most alarming of any of these policies, the program under which the administration asserts the authority to kill people abroad, including U.S. citizens abroad, uh, without charge, without trial, without due process of any kind. It's a big deal. Uh, and that's something that's being expanded by this administration. So uh, again, we try to give them credit where, where, where credit is due, but we also want to uh, try to convince them to correct their course, because they're only 18 months into this administration. There's still time to change, the, change those policies, uh, and we hope that the report will, uh, will, will encourage them to do that. President Obama on the campaign trail promised a clean break from George Bush on the vital issue of civil liberties, but he hasn't delivered. The most recent example is the revelation this week that the White House has asked Congress to pass a bill allowing the FBI to find out what web pages we've been visiting and what email addresses we use and receive, all without a warrant. Obama and Big Brother 
have become good friends. Just look at national security issues. As the ACLU notes in a new report, there's a very real danger that the Obama administration will enshrine permanently the policies and practices that were widely considered extreme and unlawful during the Bush administration. It added, there's a real danger the Obama administration will preside over the creation of a new normal. And a very disquieting normal at that. It's a funhouse mirror where normal means the U.S. government can murder civilians summarily, kidnap anyone they want, and then hide them forever in a secret prison at Bagram Air Base. When many progressives voted for Obama, they never dreamed he'd adopt such policies, but he has. And for that, he deserves no slack. Everybody. My name's Kurt, and I've been following and subscribing to the best of the left for the last several years. Jay's created a show that excels on its own, being not just enjoyable, but also informative. Jay brings to me a multitude of voices from the left, many of whom I hadn't even heard of before, that help me understand that my beliefs are more valid than ever. Helping spread the word of and knowledge from a multitude of progressive sites is something that best of the left does so very well. And folks, that's why I'm a member. The ACLU defends the Nazis' right to burn down ACLU headquarters. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. American Civil Liberties Union officials announced today that the organization will go to court to defend a neo-Nazi group's right to burn down their headquarters. ACLU President Nadine Strassen. If we take away these Nazis' right to burn down our headquarters, we take away everyone's right to burn down our headquarters. Making the case more controversial is the neo-Nazis' demand that the ACLU's entire staff be in the building at the time of the blaze. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Chair of Islamic Studies at American University, a former ambassador of Pakistan to the United Kingdom. His new book is called Journey into America, The Challenge of Islam. Please welcome to the show, Ambassador Akbar Ahmed. Sir? Thank you for joining us, Ambassador. Thank you. Very nice to have you. The book is called uh, Journey into America, The Challenge of Islam. Uh, obviously, we in America are very familiar with Islam. We know it as a singular uh, movement hell-bent on the violent destruction of, of America. <laughs> you say it's not quite that simple, that there is some wiggle room within that. Talk, talk to me. John, I quote the founding fathers, who I know that you embody and represent, you and people like you in America today. The founding fathers had the greatest respect for religious pluralism. John Adams on the prophet of Islam. He called him one of the greatest truth seekers of history. Franklin called him a model of compassion. And Thomas Jefferson had the first iftar, the breaking of the fast during the month of Ramadan, and owned a copy of the Quran. And Washington, of course, had the highest respect for Islam. These are the founding fathers. Their vision was of a genuinely pluralistic society. And those Americans who are now attacking Islam simply as a terrorist religion or religion of evil really need to go back to their own founding fathers. Wasn't it George Washington who said, any mosque has to be at least six blocks from ground zero? Wasn't that... Well, I, I don't know if it was... I, it was either Washington or... I, I definitely read it somewhere. I, I think, John, there's a danger of history being rewritten, and we have to be very careful here, because that really, to my mind, after this one-year study and travel throughout the United States with my marvelous team of young American researchers, that really is the foundation of the United States of America. That is the America that everyone loves. That is the America that millions and millions of Muslims have come from abroad to settle in and enjoy the life here. Tell me, you know, it, it, it's such an interesting study because 
you, you came and you traveled around, you went to 75 different? 75 cities, we went to 100 mosques. And you found that within uh, uh, American Islam are a lot of different divisions that you did not expect to see. I found what surprised me and pleased me was the presence and strength of African-American Islam. We met some very impressive Imams, for example. You know, these are Americans, they're African-Americans, they're also Muslim. Proud to be Muslim, proud to be American. And somehow they get overlooked in the discussion on Islam because in America, Islam is often equated to Arab, not so much to African-American, who really are the first Muslims. They come right at the start of American history. So why is it so impenetrable to Americans? Why, why do you believe Americans are having, uh, other than you know, uh, uh, the issues with radical groups and Al-Qaeda and that, is it that the religion itself is impenetrable to Americans and that mosques are somehow uh, uh, a place of mystery? They become a symbol. Uh, in fact, Islam is very much, uh, to most Americans, uh, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, what Churchill said about the Russians. And I really think Muslim and Muslim leadership has to work much harder at explaining Islam to their American colleagues and friends. And Americans need to understand that these are citizens, John, that these are part of this land, that they love this country. Many Muslims told us on this journey that America is the best place to be a Muslim. Many do, do, do the Imams, the people that you met, do they resent having to, to work harder? Do they resent having to do that, that work? Again, it depends which Imams, because this is one of the first studies to actually study the Imams. These are the people instructing the congregation. African-American Imams are part of this culture. A lot of Imams who are coming from the Middle East and South Asia are really now operating in a different environment. And that's the challenge of the Muslim leadership, to actually tune them to the environment here. I thought the most interesting thing about this is the difficulty in judging appearance in terms of religious belief. That you, you, you talk about meeting uh, Muslims that are orthodox and full beard and, and full riga, who are incredibly liberal and modernist, and others that you would view as very middle class, yet in their religious belief are very fundamentalist that uh, you can't judge a book by uh, its cover. And for us, boy, that's just the really quickest way to do it. Exactly, because <laughs> we, we are doing it, and yet you see the homegrown terrorists, uh, the five men from Virginia, Faisal Shahzad in New York, mm -hmm. they were all middle class, if you saw them, studied here, been to high school here, and yet they were what we would call the modernists. We would not suspect that they had these uh, anti-American sentiments in them. Yet when we see a woman in a, in a hijab or a veil or a man with a beard, we often think that there's something wrong with them. I'm uh, present company excluded, of course. <laughs> Just mentioning something to a friend on the... <laughs> Red Eagle, the, the bagel is in the carton. <laughs> what, what then is, in, in, in your mind, the, the next step, for people that would like to help in the effort to sort of uh, bridge this, or at least take the temperature down of the conversation, what, what's the step? This is the key, key, key problem, John. Not only you're raising it, but this is what the administration has raised, because right now, we have hundreds of thousands of troops over there in the Muslim world, and the connection with the Muslim world is like that. We just can't cut it off. There are 1.4 billion Muslims, 57 nations. We need to understand Islam very, very quickly. And as you said, bring the temperature down. Uh, there are marvelous rabbis and bishops who I know I'm working with who are in, involved in interfaith. We need to understand each other, visit synagogues, churches, mosques, visit our neighbors, make friends and not isolate the Muslim community. Right now, the Muslim community is sort of isolated, right. sort of being demonized, and the sense is growing in America that anything associated with Islam is somehow alien and foreign and aggressive, and that right. is very dangerous. So you're saying, if I'm, and again, I'm probably paraphrasing, crusade is out. <laughs> <laughs> crusade is out, uh, John, because these are Americans, these seven million Muslims living here are American. I mean, they're very right. much part of the... No, it's, it's, it's a great study, and it just, it completely drives home the incredible diversity of something that I think in, in our eyes we view as a, a, as a monolith. And, and anything that lends that obviously is, is very helpful. Uh, it's called Journey into America, the Challenge of Islam, Ambassador Akbar Ahmed. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestofleft.com. 
You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Glenn Beck is going to explain uh, what uh, Martin Luther King's dream really was and how he represents it, and Al Sharpton does not. Now look at uh, what he does with Al Sharpton's quote here, clip number one. Kind of scratching the surface of the civil rights movement, what is it, what was it, what is it really all about, versus what progressives and radicals now want you to think it was all about. Let me show you how the movement in the 1960s has been perverted and distorted. You've got folks now like the Reverend Al Sharpton telling people that Martin Luther King's dream was really about redistribution of wealth. Here he is. Someone was saying to me the other day, Reverend Sharpton, we got an African-American president. We've achieved the dream of Dr. King. And I told him that was not Dr. King's dream. He's a great man. I'm working with the president and supporting the president. But the dream was not to put one black family in the White House. The dream was to make everything equal in everybody's house. I, I don't remember that. Really? So he's saying that Al Sharpton, by saying that uh, we should make everybody equal, is actually saying we should take all the money in the country and split it up equally between everybody halves. Now, is that what you got out of that clip? No, of course. He was saying, hey, we should have equality, okay? Which is what I think almost all Americans believe in. Not equality in results, equality in opportunity, right? Not just for one person, but for everybody. But Glenn Beck takes that and goes, aha! Redistribution of wealth, right? I know what MLK stood for, and these black folks don't, right? Now, I, we've showed you numerous clips of Rush Limbaugh saying similar things. So, I mean, let's give you some Rush Limbaugh quotes to see if he represents uh, African Americans more than Al Sharpton, NAACP, etc. Uh, first, he was talking to a caller once, and I found this to be the most instructive of all. Nobody ever talks about it, uh, and so I wanted to bring it to your attention one time. A caller calls in and says, um, is having a conversation with Limbaugh. Limbaugh says, look, there are two reasons. Um, I'm sorry, he says, uh, they want us to get out of Iraq, and, uh, but they can't wait to get us into Darfur, right? And the uh, caller says, right. Then Limbaugh continues and says, there are two reasons. What color is the skin of the people in Darfur? Caller, uh, yeah. It's a typical caller for Rush. And Rush continues, it's black. And who do the Democrats really need to keep voting for them? If they lose a significant percentage of this voting block, they're in trouble. Caller, yes, yes, the black population. Limbaugh, right, so you go into Darfur, you go into South Africa, you get rid of the white government there, you put sanctions on them, you stand behind Nelson Mandela, who was bankrolled by communists for a time, had the support of certain communist leaders, you go to Ethiopia, Ethiopia you hear, and you do the same thing. So here's Rush Limbaugh saying, ah, oh, they got rid of the good white government in South Africa and supported this no-good communist Nelson Mandela, and why'd they do it? To appease the black population here in America. But don't worry, he represents civil rights better than the NAACP does, right? Now, if you're not convinced by that quote, well, we got a lot more where that came from. How about when Rush Limbaugh told the caller, take that bone out of your nose and call me back. That doesn't do it for you? How about when he said, have you ever noticed how all composite pictures of wanted criminals resemble Jesse Jackson? By the way, Rush, no, I have not noticed that. I know one of the criminals is a guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh, and he doesn't look anything like Jesse Jackson. And uh, if that weren't enough, one more. He said the NAACP should have riot rehearsal. They should get a liquor store and practice robberies. Gee, I wonder what... Rush Limbaugh and other conservative commentators think of black people in this country. But don't worry, they're out for your best interests. They represent MLK better than you guys do. So here's Glenn Beck. He's going to take a clip actually from our show where Michael Schur interviewed Julian Bond, who was the head of the NAACP at the time. And look at how he twists that around to make his same point, clip number two. also have the NAACP now telling um, everyone that King 
was a socialist. He said the uh, NAACP came out, I don't know, this is about six months ago, saying that we, we wouldn't be celebrating Martin Luther King Day if we really knew who he was. Well, wait a minute, hang on just a second. Help clear this up. Listen closely to what the chairman of the NAACP recently said. We, we don't remember the king who was the critic of capitalism, who, who said to uh, Charles Fager when they were in jail together in Selma in 1965 that he thought uh, a modified form of socialism would be the best system for the United States. Uh, we don't remember the Martin Luther King who um, talked ceaselessly about taking care of the, the masses and not just dealing with the people at the top of the ladder. Uh, so we've anesthetized him. We've, we've made him into a different kind of person than he actually was in life. And it may be that that's one reason he's so celebrated today, because we, we celebrate a different kind of man than really existed. But he was a bit more radical, not, not terribly, terribly radical, but a bit more radical than we make him out to be today. Hey, is that true? Was he a socialist? Was he a communist who was the guy? Now we have King starting to be painted as a radical. You know what? King was a radical. And just as Jesus was a radical. So what Beck is doing here is, no, 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 no. I'm not calling Martin Luther King uh, a communist. Uh, I'm on Martin Luther King's side. I'm on Jesus' side. These new civil rights leaders, they're the ones calling them radicals and socialists and communists because they want African Americans in the country to be socialist communists now, right? And he takes a, a quote of Julian Bond out of context there. And it, but even if you just watch that quote, it's painfully obvious that, if you, first of all, if you know the facts, Julian Bond's 100% right, that Martin Luther King cared a tremendous amount about poverty in the country. He thought that was one of the real injustices. He cared a lot about ending the Vietnam War. Etc. Etc. Things that the conservatives hated him for back then, and guess what they called Martin Luther King back then? A communist, right? But now Beck says, no, 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 don't worry. King is on our side. He was for the rich, and etc. And these new civil rights leaders—they're the socialist the redistribution of wealth guys. Now he's going to make it more obvious in the upcoming uh, uh, clips, and he's going to eventually tie it to Barack Obama. So let's go to clip number three here, where he talks about. He's going to bring in social justice and whether Jesus was on, you know, conservative side, liberal side, etc. I've taken a lot of hits from people like Reverend Jim Wallace on social justice. I spoke my mind on social justice because I needed you to know that there was a poison in many of our churches. This poison, I explained, is social justice the way Jim Wallace or Jeremiah Wright understands it. It isn't in the gospel redistribution of wealth is not in the gospel Jesus never said take from the rich no Jesus never said take from the rich Jesus loved the rich <laughs> you're this social justice you think Jesus was for social justice no 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 Jesus and Martin Luther King are on Glenn Beck's side they think you should keep all your money right it's curious, because I got some quotes from Jesus, and I can do this all night long, but I'm going to give you three short ones, okay? Uh, first, let's, how about this one? But woe unto you that are rich. That's from Luke 6.24. Does that look like the Bible and the New Testament is on the side of the rich? But woe unto you that are rich. Interesting. Um, and then how about James 5.1? Go to now, ye rich men, Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Does that sound like it's pro-rich against social justice? All right, and then, of course, everybody knows the famous one. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's, of course, from Mark 10, 25. Okay, so, but don't worry. Glenn Beck's version of Jesus loves the rich and thinks you should keep your money. He's going to go on that theme in the next clip. And it's a great little twist on the grace of God. Let's go to that. Do you notice anything that is missing here? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, one, merit. The idea of your character and merit. You earn certain things, but when it comes to salvation, what's missing? Grace. Grace. You're saved by grace. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't. 
There is no deed, no random act of kindness, no amount of money to spread around to others that earns you a trip to heaven. It can't happen. It's earned by God's grace alone. Oh, I love that one. What's he saying to you there? No, no kindness is going to help you. It's just up to God, God's grace. So don't give any money to anybody. Jesus didn't want that. Don't do random acts of kindness. Jesus didn't want that. He wanted to hoard you, you to hoard your money and then say, well, it's up to the grace of God. What can I do? In the beginning, he said, look, I earned my money. I, I earned it. I get to keep it, okay? Jesus told me I could keep the money. So did Martin Luther King. Okay. So now we're going to start to connect it to Obama. Uh, he's, and this is all going to work with liberation theology, et cetera. Let's go to the next clip. Cohn himself has argued that the Bible is insufficient to know what social justice is. Do you know why? Because social justice isn't in the Bible. That's awesome. He says you need Marxism to understand what Christianity means. Now, I have to tell you, I don't think, and I think most Christians will agree with me, that Karl Marx speaks for God. I don't think so. What do you say we 86 Marks here? Thanks, but no thanks. All right, so now he's taking James Cohn, who he claims is the leader of liberation theology. Uh, Maybe my bad, I haven't heard of the guy before, right? And he played a bunch of his clips, and then he says, you see, liberation, black liberation theology, black, black, black liberation theology equals Marxism, social justice, redistribution of wealth. No, 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 Jesus didn't want any of that. Jesus wanted you to keep your money. Woe unto you that is rich. That was a typo. That was a typo, okay? So now here comes the ultimate goal. Connect Obama to the Marxists who are for social justice, etc. Let's go to the last clip. Let me bring this now to Barack Obama. Hmm, Really? I will play some audio here, lots of audio, of Barack Obama talking about individual salvation. His individual salvation depends on collective salvation. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, according to liberation theology, it means that salvation and redemption bought by Jesus comes in the form of political and social liberation for minorities from white oppression. Salvation is realized with minorities achieving economic and political parity via redistribution of wealth with whites. Minorities are saved in the sense that white people constantly confess and repent of being racist and meet the economic demands of minorities via the redistribution of wealth as a consequence of, of, in some form or another, reparations. There it is. See, this is why I went back and looked at all these clips, because Limbaugh talks about this, Beck talks about it, all the conservative commentators talk about it. They all mention the same words, redistribution of wealth, reparations, payback. They connect it to this liberation theology, etc., in an effort to connect it back to Obama. What does it equal at the end? He's saying, because these guys believe in social justice, what they want to do And what Barack Obama wants to do is to take white people's money and spread it around to the black people. That's the redistribution of wealth. That's what Rush Limbaugh calls payback. That's what they all call reparations. Has Obama talked about reparations at all? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Not even anywhere near it, right? But it doesn't matter because some other black guy who believes in liberation theology once talked about it, and, I'm, and he's black and Obama's black, and so I'm going to put them all together, and I'm going to say, you see that? They want social justice, and they want to take all your white money and give it to black people. But why would anybody ever think they're racist? No, no, no. They're on the side of civil rights. You know, what's weird is that, though, during the civil rights era, conservatives in this country as I recollect, were deeply against civil rights. In fact, they filibustered civil rights, the actual bill itself, to make sure that blacks and whites did not have the same rights. It's funny how now all of a sudden they claim the opposite. But are they really? And when you look at the message here, and you will see, this is the beginning, you will see this over and over and over. Understand what they're saying. It's not very complicated, as you see the clips. What they're saying to their audience is Obama is a black guy who wants to steal your white money. And it's sickening, it's perverse, and is it racist? Hell yes, it's racist. It couldn't be any more racist. And you saw it there right for, for yourselves.
In the news this week, some of the nation's top civil rights leaders are angrily accusing right-wing media star Glenn Beck of hijacking the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King by planning to rally his conservative forces at the same Lincoln Memorial site of the famous I Have a Dream speech. Those civil rights leaders are planning a counter-rally of their own. Here's Beck's response. Top civil rights leaders are accusing me of hijacking Dr. King's legacy. Really? I'm hijacking his legacy? Gee, that sounds almost like what uh, what some people in politics might have done to Martin, uh, Martin Luther King's legacy. Interestingly enough, Beck did previously say this. Damn it, we will reclaim the civil rights moment. We will take that movement because we were the people that did it in the first place. A week from tomorrow, on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, Glenn Beck is planning a rally on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He's been plugging the event for months as an opportunity to, quote, reclaim the civil rights movement. From whom? Black people? <laughs> All right, let's let him explain. We're going to be there restoring honor in Washington. As we create history together, your children will be able to say, I remember, I was there. Uh, as we as we pick up Martin Luther King's dream that has been distorted. The only thing that's been distorted is Glenn Beck's relationship with reality. Beck can try to rewrite history all he likes, but as everyone in the country knows, conservatives were the ones who fought tooth and nail against civil rights. And where MLK gave his speech is hallowed ground. Should we even allow conservatives near there? Sure, they have their First Amendment rights, but is that how they should exercise it? Remember that line of argument somewhere else? All right, now one of his scheduled speakers is Sarah Palin, the woman who told Dr. Laura to reload after her record-breaking N-word rant. Is that also part of Martin Luther King's dream? When white men and white women can hold hands and scream the N-word together? I don't think that's what King was talking about. Also, speaking at Beck's rally is Ted Nugent, who recently told an audience in Dubuque, Iowa, quote, There's a lot of white people in this crowd. I like that. Dubuque's a white town. Now, to be fair, that's totally King. Not a lot of people remember this, but right before the I Have a Dream speech, King looked out into the crowd and said, I see a lot of white people here. Cool. I love that Washington is such a white town. You don't remember that, do you? Yeah. That gets by people. <laughs> Glenn Beck having the audacity to compare his nightmare vision of America to Martin Luther King's dream is pure psychotalk. That boy needs therapy. Psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Purely psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. What does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny let's have a tube. I want to count three. That red. That, that, that boy needs therapy. He was, he was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. This weekend is the anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech, one of the most famous speeches, one of the most famous moments in American history. This year, on the 47th anniversary of the speech, a Fox News Channel TV host has decided to use the anniversary as an occasion for a rally of conservatives in Washington at the site of the speech at the Lincoln Memorial. I do not purport to understand revising civil rights history so people will think conservatives were for civil rights and not against. I do not purport to understand this revisionist effort. I'm just telling you that's what they're doing. But a Tea Party group uh, based in the great state of Maine has put out a guide for any Tea Party-minded folks who might be planning on attending the rally in D.C. It's a sort of Tea Partiers rough guide, I'm from out of town guidebook for visiting our nation's capital. Parts of it, at least. Parts of our nation's capital. Very specific parts of it. Um, right before they list the exact home addresses for a number of Democratic politicians, nice, um, they give Tea Partiers traveling to D.C. for this big rally, they give them some safety advice for how a visiting Tea Partier protester should visit our nation's capital. Quote, 
If you are on the subway, stay on the red line between Union Station and Shady Grove, Maryland. If you are on the blue or orange line, do not go past Eastern Market, Capitol Hill, toward the Potomac Avenue stop and beyond. Stay in Northwest DC and points in Virginia. Do not use the green line or the yellow line. These rules are even more important at night. There is, of course, nothing wrong with many other areas, but you don't know where you are, so you should not explore them. Do not use the green line or the yellow line. It is dangerous. It is scary. The whole lines. Don't. <laughs> don't. Don't. If, you get, if you're approaching the turnstile and you feel like, is it nighttime? Yeah! Don't do it! As you can see, the green and yellow lines are two of DC's central metro lines. In fact, you make it harder on yourself if you don't take those lines, especially if you're coming in from Maryland or, say, Virginia. I, I wonder if it's rough for people going, say, to the Pentagon, right? If not being able to ride the blue line because the yellow line is so scary. Protecting yourself from the evil green and yellow lines would also protect you, of course, from Howard University, the country's most prominent historically black college. Ah! Or maybe it's the U Street stop. The U Street stop where you'll find Ben's Chili Bowl, a historic restaurant that attracts luminaries and laymen alike with its sloppy, beefy goodness, and at which I gained five pounds in two weeks while once renting an office across the street. Perhaps it's uh, another attraction only accessible on the yellow and green lines. Could be um, the National Archives, where the Constitution is. Be afraid, Constitution's there, especially at night. Look at this other map of DC. Look at this other map of DC. You see the big rectangular part? If you follow the Tea Party tour guide, you will limit yourself to that little sliver. See the little tiny sliver in the middle of it? The little tiny little thing looks like a flag on its side? That's it. That's the part of DC you are advised to segregate yourself within if you are visiting Washington DC for the anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech. We are mere days away from Glenbeck's Restoring Honor Rally, the rally that is being held on the same date and in the same location as Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. To prepare, Media Matters compared Beck's words to that of MLK. King specifically pointed to the, quote, pursuit of social justice as one of his goals. Beck has said, If you see anything that talks about social or economic justice, those are the language of people like Hugo Chavez. On the role of government in fighting poverty, King said, quote, We will place the problems of the poor at the seat of the government. Beck had a slightly different opinion. Big government never lifts anybody out of poverty. It creates slaves, people who are dependent on the handouts. But today's most outrageous comment came from Beck's radio show today when he explained why he had only written bullet points for his 828 speech. I am uh, doing that so I don't get in the way of the spirit in case he wants to talk. Uh, my friend uh, Glenn Beck is apocalyptic, right? He is all worked up and he thinks we're all in a lot of trouble and he loves to rant about it and he's going to bring God into this. I need you to, we're going to show you a bunch of clips and they're all fantastic, but wait till the last one because the last one is gold. Okay, so let's go to the first one here, uh, clip number six about the MLK speech. I am not right. I'm writing bullet points of a speech, and um, uh, you want to talk about uh, trust in the Lord. Um, I know that people are going to hammer me because they're going to say, well, that's no Martin Luther King speech. Of course it's not Martin Luther King. You think I'm Martin Luther King? You think I'm a... Uh, Martin Luther King only delivered the probably the most important and the best speech ever delivered in American history. I mean, it's up there with a Gettysburg Address for the love of Pete. But instead of going for a speechwriter or anything else or trying to write something very eloquent, I am only writing a few bullet points. And I am uh, doing that so I don't get in the way of um, the spirit in case he wants to talk. And I, uh, I would just ask that you would pray for me. You want to talk about a risk. 
um, if you would just pray that I would be able to hear um, because sometimes uh, sometimes he's screaming at me and I still can't hear it. So, of course, he's referring to the speech he's going to give this weekend on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial, which he says was a coincidence. I love everything he said there. First, do you think I'm Martin Luther King? I was thinking, no. I don't think anybody thinks that. Okay. And he says, for the love of Pete, I'm not. Who's Pete? Okay. Anyway, so, but the last part was great. Did you understand who he was talking about? He said he's going to let the spirit talk to him. That's why he's only writing bullet points. So apparently the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, Jesus Christ, is going to speak through Beck. And sometimes the, the Spirit speaks to him, but Beck doesn't listen well enough. Well, he should. You know why? Here's what the Spirit's telling him. <laughs> shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! But he's not listening to the Spirit well enough. This guy, I mean, get a load of him, man. If you're religious person, you're a Christian. Aren't you offended by that? This guy thinks that, what, Jesus Christ speaks through him? Alright, look, maybe I'm being unfair. You say, you know, sometimes the Spirit speaks through people. That's just a way of saying things. Okay, fine. Let's go on to the next one, see if it gets any better. Uh, now he's going to get more apocalyptic, and he's going to talk about God more, but also blood more. Let's check it out. As I stood at the Lincoln Memorial the other day, and I, I read the words, what I saw on the wall. I'll read his exact words, but in a nutshell. God will wash this nation with blood if he has to. But he doesn't have to. Oh, thank God. He doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be this way. There are forces that we are, we are not fighting against Barack Obama. We're not fighting against the Democratic Party. We're not fighting something that simple. Oh, how I wish we were. We're not. I told you after September 11th, there is a perfect storm formulating, and it is here. And I have begged, if you if you listen to me as the market started to melt down I told you I begged you then please please get off of this party thing please and let's have real conversations for the love of Pete let's please come together why because I said at the time we are passing all of the exits gang there is one exit left there is one exit left and it is God Mm. Everything that is coming our way is too big to handle on our own. If we do not put God at the center of our own personal lives and the center of our country, we will not survive. The country will be washed with blood, and then someone will have to start over. And God only knows how long that takes. All right, first of all, the, this country will be washed with blood is just a horrible thing to say uh, on national air. I mean, you're encouraging folks to do crazy things. I mean, and it's, it's crazy, and that part's not funny, okay? But the rest of it is hilarious. You know, I wish we were fighting against Obama or the Democratic Party, but it's not that simple. We're fighting against something larger. What is that? What are we fighting against? What? I mean, he keeps talking about God. So what, are you fighting against evil, Satan, bankers? Who are you fighting against? Right? But he never explains. Well, he's going to explain a little later about God. Uh, he says, listen to me. We're out of exits. We're at exit 16A on the turnpike. we got to go on the Lincoln Tunnel. We have no more exits. Actually, I think it goes all the way to 18W because you can take the George Washington Bridge. Anyway, so that, that leaves me with the central question of, okay, I, I, I'm not a religious person, so I don't understand. You know, he says, that's it. The only answer is God. But then I wonder... What does God want? I don't know. I can't talk to God. I don't. I'm not like Beck. I, the Spirit doesn't talk through me. So it's easy to say the only answer is God. You get a lot of people who agree with you. But the question is, what does the Picard want? <laughs> what does God want? I don't know, right? But don't worry, because Glenn Beck's going to tell you, and you're going to love the answer. Last clip. Our sponsor, this half hour is Goldline. What? I want you to read the headlines today. Listen to this. I want you to read I want you to read about the 
stock market. I want you to read about housing sales. I want you to read that in the last 30 months we've added 4.4 trillion dollars to our debt. I want you to read up on the Weimar Republic. I want you to read about Oakland. What? I want you to I want you to just look in the newspaper and ask yourself which politician is it that will pull us out of this? And then I want you to ask yourself you have faith in man or in God? If you put your faith in man, God bless you. I can't wait to see the solution. But if you don't, I ask that you would consider it's not right for everybody. And I don't buy it as an investment, although it has been the best investment I have purchased. I ask you to look at gold as a relief valve, as something that in case inflation comes, it is always the the flight of, of last resort. It is always the hedge against inflation. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. But I would ask that you would consider your options and call Goldline. Oh, that was awesome. Man or God, which one is it going to be? If you put your faith in God, you must buy gold. So we figured it out. It turns out God does have a message. It's to visit uh, Glenn Beck's sponsors. <laughs> okay? It turns out God loves Goldline. What a huckster this guy is. Gets everybody worked up all washed in blood and 4.4 trillion in Oakland. Okay? And the Weimar Republic and the Nazis are coming and then, so what's the answer? Goldline. <laughs> Pay me. <laughs> Snake oil salesman. On the other hand, he could be right. You know, I was talking to God the other day. You know what he said was the answer? Netflix. <laughs> Go to netflix.com slash TYT, and God says you get a free trial membership. You know, those movies, they make the time go by. They make you feel a lot better. <laughs> get a load of this guy, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> So, please, tell your family, friends, everybody you know, this guy's the biggest fraud in the history of mankind. He thinks God should, wants you to buy gold and other sponsors of his program. What a joke this guy is, man. Don't believe a word of what he says. from Atlanta, Georgia. I wanted to comment on uh, Glenn Beck's rally. Uh, uh, I'm an African-American, and I'm, you know, I really don't think it's... Yeah, you know, I, I'm an African-American. I'm not conservative. I'm not a right-winger. You know, I'm like a progressive, but, you know, it, you know, it's really no big deal to me. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think you guys are almost falling into a trap, but... Alright, that's, that's all I had to say. Alright, thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Andrew from Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. Just calling to thank you for all the work you put in the Best of Love podcast. I love the show. I've been listening to every episode since I first discovered it four or five months ago. Um, I don't have cable and I don't like watching TV too much, so this, and plus it makes, saves my time, I can just in everything into one quick show. I love it. I got my best of left t-shirt. I wear all the time and just trying to promote the show, get more people to listen to it. I just got done listening to the, the recent um, glow, uh, climate change bill show. And uh, once again, a job well done. Excellent show. It's a very, this is another issue I'm very passionate about. And uh, I believe it's a big issue of our times. And it's just great that, uh, the truth is getting out there. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. I love Best of the Left Rate podcast. My name is Steve Bieneman. I'm from Northern Illinois, and uh, I've been uh, reading um, 
Upton Sinclair's oil lately and pondering how difficult it is to keep up with what's going on on the less reported side of the news. And uh, searching my Android phone, discovered that there was a podcast named Best of the Left. And as soon as I saw the title, I knew this was a great idea. Thank you very much for putting it on. Hey, Jay. My name's Steve Barnes. I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia. Southern boy represent here. And as you can imagine, me and my wife oftentimes feel like the only uh, leftist progressives in our town, which of course isn't true. But being as we're uh, you know, Christian churchgoers, and I'm a scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts of America, we're surrounded by conservatives about 99% of the time, which is what it is. But it's refreshing that I get to hear a show like yours on a regular basis. Please keep putting it out. Um, I've been listening to the Young Turks since their inception, and of course watch the Daily Show and the Cabaret Report every night. But you have turned me on to some new shows, such as uh, Dan Carlin's Common Sense and uh, Citizen Radio, which I love because I'm a vegetarian as well. I love those guys. So just wanted to send you a little love letter here and let you know I'm loving your show, and keep it up. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to everyone who uh, decided to call into the show. If you are interested in calling in and leaving a message to be played on the show, as you just heard, the number is 206-202-3410. And I have a question for you today I would love, love, love an answer to. This is the easiest question ever. If you live in or around the Washington, D.C. area and had any firsthand experience with the people coming into town for the big Glenn Beck rally over this weekend, please call in and uh, and tell us all your firsthand experience and uh, you know what were people doing, what was going on, uh, what kind of signs did people have, highlights of the event, all those sorts of things. I would love to hear that sort of thing. Uh, similarly, if you have any firsthand experience uh, being uh, detained in Guantanamo Bay without a trial. I would also love uh, for you to call in and uh, and give your firsthand experience about that as well. So again, the number is 206-202-3410. Now, my comments at the end of the show are going to be really short, and it's just uh, excitement and gloating a little bit. Uh, so I want to mention, it's, I don't know, it's been a, it's been a good month. Uh, the, the planet's aligned. So this month, here, here's the checklist. We're number one at Podcast Alley. That's entirely thanks to you guys. That's voting that happens every month, and it resets at the beginning of every month. We're at the end of August, and we're sitting pretty at the number one slot uh, over at Podcast Alley, so that is awesome. We uh, passed 2,000 uh, members on Facebook, so uh, 2,000 of you have gone and uh, and signed up to you know follow or like or become a fan of uh, Best of Left on Facebook, so that's nice. The last episode I did was the 400th episode, which is a nice little milestone. And finally, I'm, I'm really just loving the, the call-in line. It's, uh, you know, I, I love to hear from you guys, and not just because people have nice things to say about the show, but because this show has always been a community effort. Um, I mean, I've, I've played it on the show before, but I've, I've gone back, and I played the very, very first utterances of any kind that I put into this podcast feed, and it was me saying, hey, welcome to the show. This is uh, my idea of what this show is going to be, and uh, so I'm going to be putting together lots of clips. And now, as you can imagine, that's like kind of crazy and impossible for one person to be able to do by themselves in a sustainable way, so I'm going to need your help. And from that moment on, you know, from the point when I had zero listeners to now, there's never been a time that this show has been in a really good and like healthy, sustainable, uh, you know, system when when the listeners weren't really integrally in, involved in, in helping to make the show. And so, um, you know, for a long time, people would send in clips. And, uh, you know, I've had volunteers who helped build the website. I've had uh, volunteers who would sign up on, um, we, 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 for a while, we had a community forum uh, set up that no longer exists, but people would, would sign up and, uh, and interact with each other to help gather clips for the show. So some people would find the clips, other people would actually go edit them out, and all of this was done through, uh, you know, community involvement on, on the forums. And so that was excellent. Um, I, uh, I had the, the same guy, uh, Billy who helped set up the website. He even took over the show for a little while when I wasn't able to do it. 
and on and on. And so, and now we're we're in the phase of uh, of the membership. You know, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm really not saying this to like promote the membership, but that it's like that is uh, what the show has become, and it's uh, it's always been a community effort, as I say. And now I think that the phone line is kind of giving voice to that community in uh, in a way that it's never really had before. So it it certainly makes me feel like you guys are actually listening and appreciating the show and, and getting something out of it. And so for all of you listening and hearing people call in, I hope you are also getting that sense of community uh, that I'm getting that's that's always existed really and and is now being given a voice. So I, I, I think it's really awesome. I hope you guys like it. And if you continue to take advantage of it, obviously I'll keep playing your messages on the air. Now, speaking of that uh, membership community that helps make the show go, I want to thank a couple of awesome members. Gene S. signed up for a monthly membership way back on January 2nd and has stuck with the show since then, helping show out every month, uh, just uh, five bucks a month. So th- thanks uh, very much, Gene. And uh, and a brand new member, but totally awesome, uh, totally awesome member, Jenny D. signed up for a yearly membership on August 14th, but has been, you know, really, really active uh, in the show and, and has really helped me out in a lot of ways kind of behind the scenes. And so I want to thank uh, both Jenny and Jean for, for their uh, support of the show and all of the members, of course, who make the show possible. So as always, of course, for details on membership, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So that's going to be it for me today. Please continue to spread the word about the show. Tell everyone you know about it. Stay connected with the show online, of course, uh, on Facebook and Twitter. You can even help spread the word online that way. And for details on the show itself, including links to the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that is always going to be listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black, black and Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.